In all the Krachen Blumen geht, hört man Sabas Dorfkes. Jinglach, Meilach, Kind und Kate, schmusen Pumpe Bockes. Jinglach, Meilach, Kind und Kate, schmusen Pumpe Bockes. Genug schon wieder Horror, wenn genug schon Morgen leihen. Macht das Sabas Dorfke, noch mehr Brieder sich verbreien. Macht das Sabas Dorfke, noch mehr Brieder sich verbreien. Brieder und Schwerster, noch in den Kirchen die Hände. Wir gehen zusammen, lo mir Nikolai kennen, da groben mit der Mane. Hey, hey, da neu Polizei, da neu Sammel der Schabier, Brassei. Nacht und Hotel gefiert, hat der Gelle mich, ein Tüser geboren, hat Kapital. Hey, hey, da neu Polizei. This is Sentinel Cast number 79. I'm Sam Sachs. I'm Sam Knight. We are in the Sentinel Fort in Washington, D.C. We are back and coming up on today's show. It's the eve of the 10th anniversary of the collapse of Lehman Brothers. We talk the significance of the investment bank going kaput and the lingering aftermath of 2008 with Alexis Goldstein, a former Wall Streeter who saw the light and a fellow podcaster. So you know she's good people. Alexis is the co-host of Humorless Queers. We also get to Guilty or Innocent here in just a minute. I know everyone wants to hear our opinion on Serena Williams. And at the end of the show, the garbage can lies in wait. Find out who gets thrown in it. First, just a reminder, the zine is out. It came out earlier on Friday. As Sam mentioned, we are on the eve of the 10th anniversary since the Lehman collapse and the, uh, I guess, the 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 real brunt of the financial collapse starting. So uh, that's the theme of this week's zine. Sam uh, compiled a nice little timeline of the financial crisis. Uh, we've got an article in there about where the next financial crisis might come from, plus a story about paying interns on Capitol Hill. There's a story about ICE. That's right. The uh, ICE is internally being urged to uh, do more reporting on civil disobedience, basically. Hmm. And uh, the inspector general used a very Orwellian term, uh, assaultive resistance against ICE officials is uh, it's something they want to document, which they can only use for good reasons, I'm sure. Good and, and wholesome and pure reasons. Well, you can read about all that right now. Patreon.com slash District Sentinel. If you're a subscriber, which a lot of you who are listening are, go read the zine this weekend. Moving on, time to dispense some justice. So you got the gavel. Yes, I do. It's guilty or innocent. Court's in session. First on the docket, Serena Williams. Double innocent. 100% innocent. Where she yelled at a... Oh, yelled at an ump. Yelled at a ref. Oh, mustn't, mustn't yell, yell at, at the refs. The, mustn't yell at the ref. Please. Look, we do... We we are sports fans. We yes. know 
sports people who yell at refs and umpires are lionized. Yes, they're good. You have we the, watch, so they yell at the refs. We watch classic YouTube videos of Baltimore Orioles manager Earl Weaver yelling at umps. Yes. We watch classics like John McEnroe, a tennis great, a tennis great within the sport. Yelling at umps. Yelling at umps all the time. It's good. Innocent. Serena Williams, innocent. Diane Feinstein. Uh, what's the opposite of innocent? It's guilty. This related to a story just coming out about Kavanaugh and an incident in high school in which he might have sexually assaulted someone. Uh, Feinstein wanted to keep that story under wraps. It's too personal. From from her own from people on her own committee. Yes, she she wanted to keep it under wraps from people on her own committee. Pretty yes. pretty astonishing. Guilty. There, guilty as hell. Hurricane Florence. Guilty. Guilty. Shooting your gun at Hurricane Florence or any hurricane. <laughs> I, I I feel like it's a little judgy. You know, I feel like nothing good can come out of this and only people can get hurt. I think it's guilty. You're guilty if you're shooting your gun at a hurricane. All right. I don't feel strong enough to say innocent. All right, so I'll guilty. just go with you there. Uh, this is something Elizabeth Warren advocated last night. Breaking up Amazon. Sure. Innocent. Innocent. Uh, how about nationalizing Amazon? Also innocent. Innocent. How about this? Breaking up Amazon and municipalizing the parts. The most innocent of all. That's as innocent as you can fucking get. Innocent. 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 All right. All right. Enough of court. Enough of court. All right. Let's get on to the interview. Fuck court. <laughs> so, as we have noted twice already <laughs> for in the this third show, time here, tomorrow will mark 10 years since the collapse of Lehman. Hmm. Lehman Brothers, the big old investment bank, to explain the importance of the failure and to describe what Wall Street was like when the shit hit the fan, Alexis joined us to talk Lehman crash anniversary. Alexis is a financial reform advocate who crossed over from the dark side after the Great Recession. She's also the co-host of the podcast Humorless Queers alongside Cade Crockford, another friend of the show. Alexis, what was it like being on Wall Street when it actually crashed, and how did that influence your decision to quit? I mean, it was pretty crazy. I I would go back and forth between the building where the tech people sat and then the main trading floor where all the the traders sat, and it was the kind of time that all the people that like you knew headed the firm but never actually saw physically anywhere would show up. Like I remember. John Thane, who was the CEO of Merrill Lynch at the time, I was working at Merrill Lynch in the crash, came came out and was, so like on the trading floor, there was this giant, I don't know how to describe it other than a scoreboard, like just this giant LED screen where they would have the ticker symbols for the major stock indexes, like that, what is the S&P 500 at? What is the Dow at? And I just remember him and then basically the head of all trading just standing there with their like arms on their, uh, sorry, their hands on their hips, just staring at it, (laughs) staring at the screen, watching the numbers tick down. Um, And the other thing that I remember from that time is there was a woman who was the head of sales for all of equity derivatives. And like the day before, I think it was Merrill Lynch got bought by Bank of America, she had a baby and she came in the very next day. It was probably like 12 hours after she had her her child. And people were like, how are you here? And she was like, how could I not be here? We just got we just got like basically bailed out by Bank of America. Um, So it was pretty crazy time. And and the thing I always like to tell people is the 
that Wall Street was way more imaginative than Washington, D.C. was when it came to what the repercussions were. Like, people on the trading floor were openly talking about what was going to happen when they nationalized Bank of America. <laughs> um, but no one in, in D.C. seemed to think that that was even remotely a possibility. Unfortunately. Um, have you ever uh, considered doing an Ari Fleischer type, like, live tweeting of what it was like that day? Uh, Lehman Brothers collapse every year. <laughs> yeah, I guess I should. It never really occurred to me, but mostly, I mean, the problem is I didn't work at Lehman, and I think it was early enough in the crisis that while people were scared, people were also still like, yeah, man, fuck you, Lehman. <laughs> like, because they were a competitor. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And people were like watching people like walk outside the building. Um, but yeah, there, there were people with boxes coming out. I guess I should do that. That's a good idea, Sam. So, why is it that uh, the the crash of Lehman is seen by a lot of uh, financial journalists and commentators and analysts as as an important landmark in the uh, in in the sort of uh, financial crisis itself? And I guess how we commemorate it or remember it or not remember it. I mean, I think there's two things. One is that no one ever in a million years expected the government to allow a bank to fail. So, like, love Hank Paulson, hate him, I, you know, whatever, you can come down wherever you want on that. Like, the dude let Lehman fail, and that is something nobody expected. So I think he wanted to get cred for, like, for that, and I think um, – it shook the markets in a way that made them terrified for the continuation of all of their businesses because everybody knew at that point that they were all in the same shitstorm that Lehman was. Everybody had the same positions. So that's one reason, and I would say that the second reason is because all of that just was this kind of pile-on knock-on effect where those positions were already crashing, and by those positions I mean all of these mortgage-backed securities that all of the banks had or were in some way involved in. Um, but the bankruptcy of Lehman, I think, just just cr created the whole bottom to fall out, and everything just spiraled downward. And the other problem is a lot of people just had money with Lehman or had trades with Lehman, and nobody knew how that was going to shake out in bankruptcy court. That stuff takes forever. And so everybody was scrambling just to basically be able to have enough cash on hand to make it through the next day, and nobody really knew if that was going to happen or not, which is why you had people on the trading floor of Merrill Lynch talking about nationalization of banks there were a number of actions that congress took in these days and we can kind of touch on a bit of them from the bailout to uh culminating ultimately in dodd frank wall street reform act uh, a few years later the thing about that legislation is it didn't just put into law all these new regulations it required the treasury department and these other entities to write all these new regulations over time and implement them here we are 10 years later what is the status of Dodd-Frank and all these new rules that were supposed to be brought about since the crisis to prevent another one? Where are we now? So a lot of them took way too long to get written, um, and some of them have, have been rolled back. So, And then some of them just never got written in the first place. So one set of rules that really were not completed were um, some around executive compensation in particular. So parts of Dodd-Frank talked about things called clawbacks, which is this basic idea that if you, like, basically lie about your, like, financials, um, the company should be able to claw back the CEO's earnings. 
Um, but I would say that the majority of Dodd-Frank was finished. You can say that it was too slow, but they did get it, most of it done. Um, but the problem is that they just took a huge chunk out of it this year, and they did that. Uh, the Republicans led the charge, but the Democrats helped them do it. There were 16 Democrats who voted to take a big chunk out of Dodd-Frank, um, and it's mostly folks in those purple or red states, so people like Heidi Heitkamp or John Tester, but also Mark Warner from the state of Virginia and Tim Kaine, um, noted sort of civil rights champion Tim Kaine, voted for the bill that included um, getting rid of some data that's used to find racial discrimination in in lending. So um, so that was this piece of Dodd-Frank that basically said that if you were a bank that was over $50 billion in assets, you had sort of a stricter set of automatic um, monitoring, monitoring that you had to be subject to. And they raised that to $250 billion. And those just sound like numbers, numbers. But basically, what you need to know is like one of the biggest players in the financial crisis was a bank called Countrywide. They were <laughs> in that sort of, they were, you know, about $100 billion in assets. That's a really dangerous size. Um, and the other thing that's crazy about this bill is it included U.S. branches of foreign banks like Deutsche Bank or UBS. Like they're about that size too. So they also this was also like a huge giveaway to foreign banks. Um, another thing happened actually during the Obama administration, and it was this big fight within the Democratic Party. It was a number of years ago, but basically there was a part of Dodd Frank that said that you had to push the riskiest derivatives out of the part of the bank that has the depositor money swaps push out correct yes and into a separately a separate entity that would like had its own capital um and obama was like making calls trying to get that passed and elizabeth warren like went on the floor of the senate and said the word citigroup 30 times because it was a bill that was written 90 percent by citigroup it was like 70 out of 85 lines were written by a citigroup lobbyist Hmm. So those are the two things that I would say are the biggest rollbacks so far. Um, the Trump administration is very interested in rolling back more, but um, that is where we're at as of today. Which was the one where Jamie Dimon was personally that calling? That was the swaps that was the push one. out the as well. Yeah. Was Jamie Dimon was, out, yeah. was whipping yeah. votes for that, too. Yeah, it was Jamie Dimon and Obama tag-teaming it. So <laughs> the, I will say the Trump administration has made it a lot worse, but it wasn't great. <laughs> it wasn't great under Obama either. Uh, yeah, I, re- I remember. I remember that vote in Congress. I seem to remember House Democrats uh, could have killed that, but didn't, and they voted with Republicans, and that was uh, extremely good. If I with some notable exceptions, but yes, that's right. So, speaking of Democrats being bad, generally, I guess. Uh, how do you think 2008 is really shaping the trajectory of the party? And do you think the legacy of the crash is, uh, is sort of what's on the minds of a lot of people going into the 2020 primary? So believe it or not, I actually really think it does. And it goes back to this bill that I was talking about that they just passed. So 16 Democrats voted for it in the Senate, which is way too many. But not a single one of the 2020 frontrunners, <coughs> sorry, voted for it. And not even, like, 
So you think about somebody like Cory Booker. Historically, he has been a friend to private equity funds. Yeah, he said, sorry if I can interrupt, he said that Obama's Obama's attacks on Romney's uh, time at Bain Capital made him nauseous, or they were nauseating. Sorry, Cory. At one point, that was his line, that President Obama's attacks on private equity were nauseating. Which is right. amazing. So you have someone like Cory Booker, a friend of, friend of private equity companies. You have someone like Kirsten Gillibrand, who represents New York. And traditionally, it didn't matter what you actually thought or didn't think. You were a senator from New York. You acted like Chuck Schumer, right? You defended the banks at all costs. Both of them voted no on this bill. Chris Murphy, another sort of 2020-er, voted no on this bill. He's from Connecticut, another sort of bastion of, like, hedge funds and private equity funds. Obviously, Elizabeth Warren's going to vote no. Obviously, Bernie Sanders is going to vote no. But it's interesting to me to see these folks who in the past were very much about, like, let's do the sort of moderate thing and let's not go too far. Like, they seem to have gotten the message that if they truly want to have a chance in the 2020 sweepstakes, they have got to go full Bernie bro. They have got to go full (laughs) Elizabeth Warren. And they are not just voting no on this bad bill that I was talking about before, which if there are nerds on the show that want to know the bill number, it was S2155 if you want to look it up. But Cory Booker has a bill about overdraft. Like, I don't know if any of the listeners have ever been hit with an overdraft fee, but they're ridiculous. They target poor people. So it's like you get a free, quote-unquote, free checking account, but, like, you overdraft it by 50 cents, and you get hit by, like, a $35 fee. Um, and then Gillibrand, I think even more impressively than Cory Booker, has signed on to this bill that puts a financial transaction tax on every single trade, which, like, Wall Street has long said, oh, my God, you can't do that. You can't do that. It'll kill us. It'll strangle us, blah, 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 which is hilarious because they pay a tiny fee for a million different things on every trade. They pay a tiny fee to their boutique research firm. They pay a tiny fee to the exchange. They pay all these tiny fees. So a tiny tax would not be a big deal, but it, you know, they freak out. So Kirsten Gillibrand has come out in favor of that. She has a postal banking bill. So like whether they believe it or not, I don't know. I don't, I can't see into their hearts, but they're clearly scared of like the left on this issue. And I think that that's a really good place for us to be. You mentioned that uh, Trump has made the situation much worse. We see the stock market reaching dizzying heights higher than much higher than it was pre-crisis. Uh, we just reported yesterday about how uh, average household or median household income uh, was back up to its highest point since 1999, right before the dot-com crash, and its second highest point before the or since then was uh, in 2007, right before the housing market crash. Should we be worried that uh, something is on the horizon again? I mean, yes. The short answer is yes. Where (laughs) where might it come from? Well, I do want to say just briefly, like a lot of those gains people are not seeing, right? Like the stock market is completely meaningless for 50% of America. It's something like 53% of America has exposure to the stock market in any form, which means 47% of us have absolutely no exposure to it. Um, But in terms of the next crisis, I don't have like one smoking gun to point you to. Obviously, a lot of people are concerned about student debt, but I think their concerns are more around um, suppressing growth. And we could have a debate about whether growth is good or not good. But, you know, just to put that aside for a minute, like people aren't 
getting mortgages, for example, because they have too much student debt. There's a lot of concern around commercial debt and the kinds of debt that companies are taking on. There's a lot of concern in things like just consumer debt, like credit card debt, the kind of medical debt, all of the debt that people go into because this country doesn't provide basic things like, you know, health insurance or, you know, housing that's affordable or uh, even child care, things like that. Um, there's some concern about subprime auto. So, like, if you don't have enough money to get a car but you really need a car, there's a lot of lending that happens, um, and there's a lot of subprime lending happening in the car space, automobile space. Um, so those are a few. Um, but I, uh, I mostly am most afraid of just how high the equity markets have gone. It's absurd. It's not sustainable. And anytime, you know, you have something that goes up for this much for this long, people get invested in keeping it that way, which means any kind of correction. And by correction, I just mean if the stock market goes down for a while, like people are going to lose their shit. Um, and companies are going to overreact and lay people off, which is obviously going to impact people. So I think my biggest concern is really just a straight up stock market crash. I couldn't point you to why it would happen. Um, other than the fact that it's been overvalued for way too long. But those are some, you know, some spaghetti I'm throwing at the wall there. Well, we're still obviously seeing the lingering effects of the crash uh, or the Great Recession, whatever you want to call it. Um, not to delve too much into a thought experiment here, but you talked about how people on the trading floor as this was going on just knew that the government was just going to nationalize the banks what if, and, and this could have come in all thought. sorts of different forms, or, well, yeah. I mean, you, they probably knew at the time, they thought, of course they thought, but they were pretty confident, I'm guessing. Um, what would have happened, and this could look all sorts of different ways, but imagine if the government would have maybe taken control of these banks, forced off all these uh, assets, maybe bailed out homeowners who are underwater and their mortgages, uh, bailed them out. Where, where would we be today? I mean, I think a lot of people would have had a lot of wealth preserved. I mean, one of the things that I always talk about is the financial crisis devastated the wealth of so many millions of families. I mean, 10 million people, they estimate, were foreclosed on. That's basically if you foreclosed on every single person in the entire state of Michigan. Mm. Um, and a huge chunk of those folks were people of color, especially black and Latino folks, whose only wealth, in many cases, was in their home. And so you decimated the ability of all of these black and Latino families to basically help their kids, help their grandkids, go to college, right, because all of their wealth was in their home. And the other thing to remember is a lot of these folks who had their homes foreclosed on already own their home. It's not like they were taking out a loan to get a home. Um, they own their home outright, and you had all these really predatory real estate folks come into their neighborhood saying, hey, don't you want to take out a reverse mortgage? Don't you want to, you know you know, tap into the value of your home and, like, talk them into these really predatory products. So if we had nationalized the banks, it does, it's not as crazy as it sounds because we actually do this all the time. The FDIC goes in when a bank fails and basically nationalizes it. What they do is they split it up. They kind of strip it down. They see what they can sell off and what they should keep and try to manage themselves. And they sell what they can sell, and then they try to manage the rest of it. Um, so I think that that's what we could have done. And you could have done things like 
we talk sometimes about something called Glass-Steagall, which separates the investment banking, casino banking from the more boring banking. I think if you would nationalize the bank like Bank of America, that's one of the first most natural things you could do is split it up into two companies. Maybe you sell the investment bank to Goldman or someone else. Um, you wouldn't or maybe even have you to change the yourself. name. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, 10, I don't know if you could have prevented 10 million people from facing foreclosure, but there's millions of people who they could have helped um, and millions of jobs that could have been saved. And I think, you know, we would be in a much better position to just negotiate as workers than we are now, right? All of the gains since the crash have gone to the top. Labor continues to lose power in the country. And it's, you know, a large part because of these policy decisions that were made way back when in 2008. But break them up, that's my short version. <laughs> they're too big, they're too powerful, they lobby with a single interest. They need to be broken up into smaller chunks so they actually compete with each other in a meaningful way and have different interests and don't just like act as this one giant oligopoly that just you know tells the government to jump and the government says how high. Break them up, but also maybe take some of them turn them into post offices, give the post office banking powers yeah. to keep the private banks honest, and then also take, yep. take some of the banks and just bulldoze them and make parks and public housing. Because quite it. frankly, well, we don't need that yeah. shit. All the, all the banks. Well, and there's one actually, one other thing I want to mention. So there's, there's these two academics who wrote a paper recently, Saleh Omarova and Robert Hockett. And people might have heard of them. Well, I think Robert Hockett was an official Bernie surrogate. But anyway, they basically talk about how there's no public option for investing your money, right? We talk about a public option for healthcare. We can even talk about a public option. I, we obviously have a public option for education, sort of, right, still, even though Betsy DeVos is trying to eliminate it. <laughs> but if you want to invest your money, you have to give it to Wall Street. You do not have a choice. I mean, you could loan it to your friend and, like, be your own, like, I don't know, loan <laughs> shark, I guess. But so they sort of pitched this idea of there needs to be an infrastructure fund and an investment fund that's run by the government, not run by Wall Street, and you can invest your money there. And they spend money on things like bridges, and they spend money on things like schools, and they spend money on things like whatever your community needs. So that's another thing we could have done, right? We could have nationalized this bank and turned it into an investment bank for America, a mm. public option for, for investing your money. Well, you can, I guess, still buy treasury bills, but I think for only, what, like 20 years, you'll get the rate of inflation, uh, <laughs> if, if you're lucky. Yeah. And even then, your yeah. money is going to, like, the and U.S. Wall military. And Wall Street gets a piece of that. And Wall they Street do, and the U.S. military. And sell them. And all, uh, yep. the FBI, all the, all, the, all the good things we love. <laughs> <laughs> Alexis Goldstein, uh, survivor from Wall Street. Uh, now doing financial reform advocacy. She's also the co-host of Humorless Queers podcast, patreon.com slash humorlessqueers. Support. It's a good podcast. Check it out. Uh, what else do people need to know to follow what you're doing, Alexis? The best way to find me is on Twitter. I'm at Alexis Goldstein, G-O-L-D-S-T-E-I-N. Um, yeah. Cool. Well, thanks See for coming on Twitter. the show. Thank you. <laughs> thanks so much for having me. Thanks again to Alexis. We're moving right along here with the podcast. Hey, can I suggest upping your Patreon subscription to name the studio? Right now, the name is up for grabs. 
We're just calling it the Sentinel Four. But if you up your subscription to two hundred dollars a month, you get naming rights, whatever you want. If you want to name it after your pet, or maybe your blog, or after yourself, whatever you want, within reason, we will name our studio. Uh, get a group of people together, join pool resources name the studio we don't care all right let's get down to business we've reached the end of the week the end of the show it's what we were born to do interns bring in the garbage can Garbage candidate number one, Andrew Cuomo, he won the primary up in New York on Thursday night, and he may win the garbage can tonight. He's a shitty governor every day and always worthy of the garbage can, but Cuomo is nominated for his dirty campaigning in what looks like outright election rigging. I don't know. Days before voters headed to the polls, Cuomo's team sent out mailers linking his opponent, Cynthia Nixon, to anti-Semitism, which is a completely baseless and disgusting claim. Then, Election Day itself was filled with an avalanche of claims of voter suppression, longtime voters showing up at the polls, finding out they were no longer registered. This happened to pretty much everyone I follow on Twitter in New York, by the way. All of this under the purview of Governor Andrew Cuomo. Then the guy, I assume, started paying off celebrities to endorse him at the last minute, like Nicki Minaj and Amy Schumer, although Schumer ended up voting for Nixon in the end. So for all that, and for being a shitty governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, you're nominated for the garbage can. Garbage candidate number two, John Bolton. It's not often you hear the argument, actually, war crimes are good. But that was effectively John Bolton's message this week when he pledged a full-out assault on the International Criminal Court. Yes, Bolton is making it easier for leftists to point out what an awful country this is, but he's doing it by doing truly awful stuff. In this case, Bolton is giving cover to U.S. atrocities in Afghanistan. It's enough to grab him by the mustache and throw him, or at least Place him in the group of garbage can nominations this week. Garbage candidate number three, Senator Jeff Flake. Flake's days in Congress are numbered. He's retiring at the end of the year, which gives him a lot of latitude to speak out and act according to his conscience. We know Flake doesn't like Trump. He's devoted many a speech to it. But this week, Flake had a chance to really kick Trump in the nuts, while at the same time preserving the norms and institutions that people like Flake care so much about. During a business meeting before the Senate Judiciary Committee, Democrats attempted to subpoena several documents about Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh's past in the Bush White House. Now, for each of those subpoenas, Democrats needed one Republican on the committee to join them. Obviously, it wouldn't be someone like Chuck Grassley or John Cornyn or Ted Cruz, folks who are perfectly happy doing the president's bidding. But what about Jeff Flake? Maybe this was going to be the first time he turned his anti-Trump rhetoric into action and vote with Democrats to expose Trump's Supreme Court nominee to more sunlight. Well, it wasn't. Flake voted with Republicans, as he always does, and he advanced President Trump's agenda, as he always does, because he's either a fucking coward or his conscience is just as rotten as the president's. Either way, Flake is more than worthy of a garbage can nomination this week. Garbage candidate number four, Clara Jeffrey. The Mother Jones editor hit it out of the park this week, when responding to Trump's disgusting tweets about death in Puerto Rico last year and inadequate disaster relief after Hurricane Maria, it takes a special kind of person to, to look like a slimeball in response to that, but Clara Jeffrey managed it this week. She quote tweeted Trump and said, 
Those who have fled Maria may have been slow to register to vote. Maybe this appalling statement will change that. (laughs) So I guess hurricane victims, displaced hurricane victims can put their life on pause, pick up Twitter, read Donald Trump's Twitter feed, and then use that Twitter feed as inspiration to register to vote, even though they don't know probably where they're going to live in either 2020 or two months from now even for the November election. Imagine thinking that whining at people about how they're failing Democrats is such a good strategy that you do it to displaced hurricane victims. That's what Clara Jeffrey did. She might have to register to vote in the garbage can this week. That's when she's not yelling at homeless people to register to vote. Uh, garbage <laughs> no, can- she doesn't want them to register true, to vote. True, true, Garbage candidate number five, FEMA director Brock Long. Brock Long is nominated for two reasons. First, he's under investigation by the DHS inspector general for taking advantage of public resources for private travel. But that's pretty routine these days in the Trump administration. Long is also nominated for defending the president's Puerto Rico trutherism. After Trump tweeted out doubts about the death toll in Puerto Rico, claiming 3,000 people weren't killed during last year's hurricanes, Long agreed. He said many of the deaths were secondary and were caused not by lack of federal response, but instead weak infrastructure in Puerto Rico. Nope, that's bullshit. Long should know better than to go along with his boss's erasure of dead Americans just because they aren't white. Or maybe Long doesn't know better. I don't know who the guy is. I just know he should be in the garbage can this week. Uh, actually, the planes on 9-11 didn't kill 3,000 people. They uh, died because the buildings collapsed. And the thermite. And the thermite. <laughs> <laughs> Quickly, move on. Finally, garbage candidate number six, Purdue Pharma. If you didn't know, Purdue is a major culprit in causing the nationwide opioid addiction epidemic. The company pushed the hell out of OxyContin, allegedly suppressing reports about its addictive qualities. Now, per recent media reports, a subsidiary of the company got a patent on a drug to treat, you guessed it, opioid addiction. So basically, Purdue lied to peddle drugs, and now it's selling protection. And the company can effectively do this because according to the New York Times, the Justice Department declined to prosecute three Purdue executives in 2007. The U.S. isn't a country. It's a fucking mafia racket. We might need to fight fire with fire this week by calling in waste management and putting Purdue Pharma in the garbage can right next to Jimmy Hoffa. Okay, we've got Purdue Pharma. I'm sorry. I feel like that's a, that's a cheap shot on Jimmy Hoffa. <laughs> a little bit. Apologies to Jimmy. Okay, we've got Purdue Pharma, Brock Long, Claire Jeffrey, Jeff Flake, John Bolton, Andrew Cuomo. The votes have been counted. They've been tallied. The winner is... Andrew Cuomo, you are going in the garbage can. Oh, your dumbass brother, Chris Cuomo, is already in there. Uh, that's it's a, a family reunion. That's as close as you'll get to your failed subway system and <laughs> underground infrastructure. That is the Sentinel cast. Thank you to our subscribers. Thank you to our sponsors. The Congressional Dish podcast hosted by Jen Briney. Find it at congressionaldish.com. Another sponsor, levelnews.org. We're back next We're back next week. We're in D.C., so you don't have to be.